to all decks. It is time. Can't believe I'm saying this, Steve Morris. It is time for our season two wrap up of Star Trek here on Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. I'm Steve Morris, and I feel the same way. It, it, it's it's you know with doing the Cinephiles, my other podcast. We will never get to the end. It's an infinite <laughs> number of movies. In fact, all we get all the time is, why haven't you done this movie? Why haven't you done that movie? Why haven't you done that movie? So it feels really weird that we're two-thirds of the way through the original series. It really is uh, uh, incredible to think that you know when we first started doing this, it just seemed like so far away to wrap my head around, oh, the end of season one, not to mention the end of season two. And now here we are at the end of season two, and it is just so incredible how rewarding this podcast has been, doing these deep dives with you, Steve, seeing the original series in a whole new, fresh light because of the way we've been examining the original Star Trek, which was conceived as an episodic series, but looking at it as a serialized series, and in so many ways... That approach really has worked to the point where you would think that that was the plan all along, which, of course, it wasn't. And I know we have a whole lot to say about season two, and that is what we were going to do on this podcast. Now, when we did our season one wrap up, we wrapped up season one and we did a preview of season two. So for our season two wrap up, we're just going to wrap up season two and we're going to save our season three preview for our next episode because we have a lot to say about season two and we have a lot to preview about season three. And I will say this, that doing these deep dives and these conversations and having guests on like Ralph Sinensky and David Gerald and Walter Koenig, it really has made me see that season two has, has represented the peak of the original Star Trek and, and, by the time we got to the end of season two, and now that we're getting into season three, I see that we are past that peak and things are gonna things are gonna change quite quickly. But for the time being, let's celebrate the achievements of season two of Star Trek, starting with on March 9th, 1968, the 15th annual Motion Picture Sound Editors Awards was held. And on the motion picture side, the two winners, there was a tie between Bonnie and Clyde, and mm. Dr. Doolittle. Now, I'm going to guess, Steve, for the cinephiles, you covered one of those movies, but not the other. Neither, actually. We 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 did not do Bonnie and Clyde. We will never do Dr. Doolittle. What's interesting, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of the most interesting years in film history. We've done many, many movies out of that year because we've done In the Heat of the Night, which won the Oscar, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, when we did as a tribute to Sidney Poitier. We did The Dirty Dozen, and we did The Graduate. But no, we have not done Bonnie and Clyde. It's exactly what I'm talking about. How could you not have done that movie? We definitely want to. It's a very important film. Oh, and it's absolutely an important film. And it's it's tailor-made for the cinephiles. Uh, so for everyone listening right now to Enterprise Incidents, if you love movies, then you got to be listening to Steve Morris's other podcast, The Cinephiles. It is a movie lover's haven. Thank you for the plug. And I realize there's one thing I have never said which is how it's spelled. So if you were looking for it and you didn't know that it was spelled C-I-N-E dash F-I-L-E-S, you probably didn't find it. So it's C-I-N-E dash F-I-L-E-S. And now, and now, now you can find it. So on the winner's side for television, 
Finally, Star Trek won something. Star Trek won the award for best sound. Now, over for the Emmy nominations, which were announced on April 17, 1968, Star Trek was nominated for four Emmy Awards. For the second year in a row, it was nominated for Outstanding Dramatic Series. And for the second year in a row, it was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for Leonard Nimoy. It was also nominated for Outstanding Achievement in Film Editing for The Doomsday Machine which a well-deserved nomination there. And it was also nominated for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Special Photographic Effects for the Westheimer Company for my favorite episode, Metamorphosis. So that's very, very cool. So out of those four Emmy nominations, Steve, how many do you think Star Trek actually won? Uh, I feel that I should know the answer, but I'm going to say zero. Yeah, you are correct. <laughs> Unfortunately, Steve, uh, Star Trek once again came up empty, empty-handed at the Emmy Awards, which were given out on May 19, 1968. It lost dramatic series for the second year in a row to Mission Impossible, which was also a Desilu show. Uh, a great and, show. And a great show, for sure. Show. And Tom Cruise will definitely agree with that assessment. And Leonard Nimoy lost... Again, this time to Doc Adams for, for Gunsmoke. Uh, it also lost Outstanding Achievement in Film Editing to the Sights and Sounds episode from Bell Telephone Hour. And it lost the uh, Metamorphosis episode for special photographic effects. I, I don't know who it lost to. But you know what? Look, I, I think it's cool that two years in a row that Star Trek did get nominated for Best Drama Series. I think that's awesome. I do too. And it did not get nominated for season three. I think we all know why. But Leonard Nimoy did get nominated all three years for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series. Now, when it came to the episodes that were rerun that summer, not every episode of season two made the cut to get the rerun. Can you guess, Steve Morris, which episodes did not make the cut to get a season to rerun in the summer of 1968. Well, if I had been paying attention to the incredible podcast Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve, I probably would know this because I'm pretty sure you said as we went along which ones didn't get it. Yeah. I think pa Patterns of Force might be one that wasn't rerun. That is and correct. I and I can't remember what the other ones are. Okay, the other ones were Friday's Child, which, which seemed... Odd that that didn't get a rerun because, you know, the Klingons were – or a Klingon was in that one. Wolf in the Fold, I can kind of understand that. Obsession, uh, you know, which is a very good episode. It's a shame that didn't get rerun. The best of the episodes that did not get rerun, and it was an episode that really had it all. And and to answer a question that we have coming up, uh, an episode that I think really improved after our rewatch and our deep dive, Bread and Circuses. That's right. Because of but, the network TV stuff. It is exactly correct, Steve. That is exactly why Bread Circuses did not get rerun because the execs at NBC felt like it was a uh, satire of NBC. And of course, they were 100% correct. <laughs> of course it was. Yeah. So listen, Star Trek had been on the bubble since the middle of the first season in terms of like getting canceled. I mean, on a, on a groundbreaking and ambitious show like this, something that had never been done in broadcast television, Star Trek was always on the bubble. They were always in danger of being canceled at the end of season one. They were in danger of being canceled in the middle of season two. 
they were in danger of being canceled. And of course, at the end of season two, they were in danger of being canceled. And while they were filming Assignment Earth in the beginning of January of 1968, Steve, they had no idea when they broke at the on that last day of filming on, on January 10th, whether or not it was goodbye or see you soon. So this leads to what I think is one of the most incredible stories in entertainment history, which is the letter writing campaign that was mounted to save Star Trek for a third season. I mean, it's incredible, Steve. You know, now that we have social media and we have the internet, it is so easy to reach anyone you want to across the world at the push of a button. But back in 1967 and 1968, you had to do this thing where you take a piece of paper and you fold it, right? So it fits <laughs> in this like this thing called an envelope, and you had to lick the back of this thing called a stamp. And you know, it was a process, and it was a process that actually started in October of 1967, when the most valid rumors up to that point had already started making the rounds that Star Trek was going to be canceled. Now, Steve, are you familiar with the name Bijo Trimble? Uh, I am. Yes, she's the one of the she's one of the key founders of the letter writing campaign. Right? Absolutely, that's correct. So, Bijo Trimble and her husband John Trimble had met Gene Roddenberry at a science fiction convention the week before Star Trek premiered back in 1966. It was a it was a science fiction convention. They they met and befriended Roddenberry. They became frequent guests to the set, uh, worked for Roddenberry as sort of as an assistant in some ways. And they, they basically mounted this letter-writing campaign to save Star Trek for a third season. And at its peak, NBC said it got 6,000 letters a week, topping wow. out at more than 200,000 letters. That's actually a conservative estimate. It was actually much, much more than that. And ads were placed in fanzines, which first made the rounds uh, in 1967 – there was a fanzine called Spockanalia, a fanzine called Vulcanalia, a fanzine called Plactow, and the official Star Trek newsletter called Inside Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry personally paid for the printing of bumper stickers that said, Star Trek lives, Spock for president, and of course, I grok Spock. And as you pointed out recently during the uh, what was going on in the world during the filming of these episodes right. – on January 6th, during the filming of Assignment Earth, about 1,000 protesters marched on the NBC lot to uh, protest and save Star Trek. So finally, on March 1st, 1968, NBC caved to the pressure, threw up their hands, and surrendered. They surrendered with an on-air announcement that came at the end of the first run of the episode, The Omega Glory. And this is what the voice of NBC said, quote, and now an announcement of interest to all viewers of Star Trek. We are pleased to tell you that Star Trek will continue to be seen on NBC television. We know that you will be looking forward to seeing the Wiggly Adventure in space on Star Trek. Wow. So can you imagine like you don't know like what's going to happen to your favorite show and you're watching the Omega Glory? And then during the ending credits, which, you know, you're just watching for whatever reason, because, of course, the ending credits are really cool with the photos from the other episodes. And you hear that announcement. 
I mean, in 1968, that was just unprecedented that that had been made. It, it's so bizarre. And, and, and just to contrast it with today, I mean, what you said is totally true. Our ability to communicate is so much greater. We also find out stuff so much faster. So today, that would have been on all, all over Twitter. It would, people have been asking the question. We would have known about it. The, the other thing I find really fascinating is, again, today, fans are so powerful. In my opinion, too powerful. You know, that that studios are constantly looking at social media and seeing how there was like we have the announcement about the announcement about a trailer is going to come out. And then everyone is hovering around social media to see what kind of engagement the trailer makes. And then they're going back and recutting the film based on the expectations of the fans. That's nuts. What what's amazing to me is that. I don't think there's any other time in history up to this point. It's not that fans didn't write in letters and it's not that they didn't have influence and it's not that studios didn't pay attention, but I don't think there's anything like this up to this point where fans really did dictate a clear multi-million dollar decision on the part of a studio. And the, the thing that I really wonder about is I not to diminish any of the hard work of all these fans who did it, but the fact that Roddenberry was there, how much did he start this? Well, that's a great question. Officially, he really kind of sort of stayed, kept his distance from the Trimbles while they were doing this, even though the Trimbles were basically working for Roddenberry. But in yeah. terms of – but in, but in terms, Steve, I mean, listen, that is a, that is a great question. And you are you are correct to be skeptical of of you know Roddenberry's claim that he didn't really have anything to do with the campaign. I mean, of 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 course he did. If the Tribbles are working for him, of course he knew about it. Of course he had something to do with it. Of course he was advising them on what to do. He just on in an official capacity, he had to make sure there was no paper trail back to him. Right. Okay. And it's not that the enthusiasm wasn't genuine. Obviously, if if there weren't hundreds of thousands of people that wanted to save Star Trek, it doesn't matter how hard Roddenberry pushed, it wouldn't work. See, the, what's 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 amazing, like you said, Steve, is that nothing like this had ever been done up to yeah. that point in the late 1960s that that a, a network caved to the pressure from the fans to continue a series for a third season. So with all of that support, you would think that the network would be like, we've got something really great on our hands here. We better, we've been wrong all along about putting it on Friday nights at 8.30. We got to give it a great time slot and we got to, we got to really take care of the show and, and make sure that it gets the right time slot to reach the biggest possible audience, because this is a very, very popular show with getting, it's getting a lot of fan mail and we have to really do right by it. We have to do right by its producer, Gene Rodberry, who at that point, by by the time the announcement was finally made, of course, that boosted his spirits. And he was really sort of leaning into coming back to the show as the show runner, not just the executive producer, and also really having a hand in writing scripts and in picking scripts from established writers like Gene Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana. But of course, of course, and this is what we're going to say for our season three preview, None of that happened. And NBC was really, after all that, all they wanted to do was kill Star Trek for good. And they did everything they could to do that. And in spite of that, I'm going to say this now, Steve, that season three 
while the worst of the three seasons still had some damn fine episodes in spite of everything that was working against it. But meanwhile, my question for you, Steve, is after our deep dive of season two here on Enterprise Incidents, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Of season two? Um, I think this this really is peak Star Trek. It's not... And I love the first season. We talked, I mean, I raved about so many of the episodes of the first season, but the run, particularly in the middle of season two, around Doomsday Machine and Mirror Mirror and all those, I mean, it's just really, to use your term, has hit its stride. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> like it's it really is solid. And and I did have a weird bit of sadness, you know, because I went, oh, this is the peak. I'm never going to yeah. quite get here again. Mm. And I'm, I agree with you. There are a bunch of episodes in the third season that I really like, and I'm going to, I'm looking forward to talking about them, but we're never going to have that kind of run as you do in season two. That that's the peak. You know, when we covered journey to Babel and, and I, I really, that to me is the end of the peak because yeah. in terms of production order, journey to Babel was the episode, it was the last of the really top, top tier, absolute classic, iconic, groundbreaking, crucial episodes. I mean, of course, you know, Spock's parents and 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 Mark Leonard as, as, as you know, and, and uh, Jane Wyatt. I mean, uh, you know, that was an episode that really had it all. So when we got to that point in our deep dive in production order, like that is where the sadness hit for me, where I went, it's never going to get as good as this. It's still going to be very, very good for the rest of season two. And there, there are great episodes towards the end of season two, like The Ultimate Computer, I think, is a great episode. But mm-hmm. but it was really like when we got to like Omega Glory and Assignment Earth, which are two episodes that I, you know, I think I like, especially with regards to Omega Glory more than a lot of people. But no, it's it's the days of uh sitting on the edge from season one and and uh you know, Devil in the Dark from season one, Aaron Mercy, The Side of Paradise, and then season two with, you know, Mock Time, like the episodes you said, and of course, my favorite metamorphosis, those days are in the past. And that is sad. That's the thing. That's the tragic thing about the story of the original series, Steve, is that you see, and we covered all of this. We've seen the rise of Star Trek. We've seen them find their way. We have we have seen them hit their stride. And now, starting with season three, we are going to see that stride really taper off to a really, really sad and heartbreaking conclusion. But I agree with you. I, I've always said that season two was not just the best season of the original series, but I think season two of Star Trek is the greatest season of any Star Trek series over its entire run since 1966. And uh, I, I just... Like, yeah, of course, I feel like it hit its stride, but it, it, in terms of, of the quality, in terms of the pacing, in terms of the actors really getting a great hold on their characters, it doesn't get better than season two. But, Steve, I did have an epiphany due to our special guest on our deep dive of The Trouble with Tribbles. Hmm. Okay, so, I'm ready. Okay. So while we were talking, you know, David Gerald was an absolutely fantastic guest, just yeah. so much energy, so much information. He really just like, that was like one of my, one of my favorite conversations, but he said something that, that I, I was hearing him while he said it, but it, 
it stayed with me. It stayed with me. And he said that even though season two was a great season, it didn't have the gravitas of the first season. And like when I, but, and I, and I, and I thought a lot about it and I think he's right in turn, like, look at, look at some of those first season episodes, you know, like uh, enemy within and, uh, and, you know, devil in the dark, errand of mercy, uh, uh, this side of paradise. I mean, they're, there, there's a little humor in some of these episodes, especially Tomorrow is Yesterday and, of course, Squire of Gothos, but it was still a serious, serious show. So as much as Gene Kuhn brought so much to the end of season one and the first half of season two, the humor did take away some of that gravitas. I mud, Trouble with Tribbles, and even though it was uh, filmed after he left, he still did write a piece of the action and and he's you know it's like sacrificing the the gravitas for for the strength in so many other ways was it worth it did it this the star trek season two lose something in effect by by gene coon's involvement overall i'm going to say no but but those words from david gerald really did make me think so i don't think they're mutually exclusive like i don't think we need to say that the humor got rid of the rid of the gravitas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because there it's because I actually think Spock and Kirk are very funny in city on the edge of forever, you know, like the ability to have some humor. And, and one of the things we talked about throughout star Trek is its ability to shift tones is really powerful. Yeah. I just think they chose not to go there. You know, like I think there's no reason to me that an episode like balance of terror can't happen next to an episode like piece of the action. That's totally fine with me. I don't think they had the desire to do the heavy episode anymore. Right. You know, in the same way that they did in the first season. You know, like, um, you know, where No Man Has Gone Before is heavy. It deals yeah. with heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they go there quite as much. It's So it's not, to me, it's not that the humor comes in and replaces it. It's that they just chose not to do that kind of an episode. And I really do think, as much as I am critical of Gene Roddenberry for a lot of things, I do think this is was one of Gene Roddenberry's strengths was wanting to engage in those kinds of ideas. Well, I, look, I agree one hundred percent. It just when 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 Gerald made that comment about the gravitas, it, it did give me a lot of food for thought. I still think that season two is, is the best of the three and the best of every season, and. It was just, you know, another perspective from someone who actually was there and worked on the show, which is another reason why it, it gave me really a lot to think about. And I would love to know from everyone listening if you think that Star Trek season two lost some of its strength because of the injection of a little too much humor. Go to our Facebook page and let us know what you think. Uh, how do you think Star Trek really evolved as it got into season two? I think the biggest thing is that it's in season two that they become a family. That's the big one for me. It's that we see the building of those relationships in season one, and certainly we see the great chemistry between Kirk and Spock. But it's an episode like Mock Time where you really see the, the, the real creation of these three friends, that these are each other's best friends. And I also think the addition of Chekhov and episodes like Mirror Mirror where you kind of see the ensemble and the emergence of Scotty, like all of those things make you feel like, oh, this is a group that works together rather than a TV show with a star and a bunch of other people that kind of show up. 
That's that's the biggest one to me is the crew of the Enterprise as a family. I I couldn't agree more. I uh, I really felt that there were more episodes in season two that really were ensemble shows where you really did feel like a family. And even though the opening credits in season two now you have the addition of DeForest Kelly with uh, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner, but in episodes like Who Mourns for Outer Nights. Mirror, Mirror, The Doomsday Machine, Friday's Child. Like you really get like obviously the addition of Chekhov and Scotty really, really stepped up to the plate, sort of teasing the answer to another question that we have coming up. But I, I agree with you. I think that the the uh, the evolution and this this all comes with the actors finding their footing with their characters, the writers really hitting their stride with writing for the show, Dorothy Fontana and Gene Kuhn especially, but also, also Steve, what helped Star Trek season two really be the peak was that you were using the very best directors on a rotating basis, the very best directors that ever worked on Star Trek. You had Joseph Pevney, you had Mark Daniels, you had Ralph Sinetsky, you had Vincent McAvity, and, and of course, John Meredith Lucas, who became the showrunner for the last uh, ten, nine episodes. And I think that really is why uh, uh, Star Trek evolved in all the right ways. You know, you had the comedy, of course, you know, you have full on comedy episodes, which worked. And you just had this dynamic and this ensemble and this family feel that really like that's that's the year. That's the peak. I, I think the other thing that happens in and a lot of this is probably Gene Kuhn is more and more we're solidifying the world that exists around us or the galaxy that exists around us more and more we're locking in this is what starfleet really is this is what the federation really is this is what the klingons are this is kind of you know like so all of that which was sort of amorphous and we were kind of what exactly does the enterprise do in season one it's a little vague you know and now it's sort of locked in we sort of have a real sense of how this thing works i think that really emerges in season two but do you think that the emergence Certainly, well, maybe not the emergence. That's probably the wrong word. But the uh, the the increased use of the prime directive as a plot device. Do you think that was was a good idea? <laughs> I think theoretically, the prime directive is a great idea, and and I really think they didn't know what they were getting into. Yeah, I, I really think they said it, and then they just you know kind of ignored it when we want to ignore it, bend it when we want to bend it, adhere mm. to it when we want to adhere to it, and not question what is the basic idea, why have a prime directive? And I think if they had done more of that thing, because I actually think there was so much more. I I think what happened, A, in Star Trek, not that I don't like the episodes in the original series, is that they just violated it all the time. So <laughs> yeah. it became sort of meaningless. And then later on, they'd adhere to it like in Next Generation to the most ridiculous and stupid degree, rather than engaging in what is this idea about? And to me, the idea is about is it's A, about not being arrogant. Because in our world, it's, you know, it's how do we relate this to our world? To me, in our world, there have been the powerful countries who have thought they knew what was best for all the other countries and all the other people. And we labeled people as savages and we made sure that they got our religion and we wanted them to use our, and that stuff wasn't all that cool. And it was in the sixties that we really started to figure out, Hey, maybe civilizing all of Africa 
wasn't really such a nice thing to do. <laughs> and maybe they knew some stuff that we didn't know. And maybe we should be a little more cautious. That's the first thing. And the second thing is our ability to predict what what's going to happen because of our interference. And of course, the, the show's in the middle of Vietnam. And we thought that was going to be a really easy war. And it really wasn't. And it yeah. went in a lot of different ways. And it was not only destructive, hugely destructive in Vietnam with 3 million Vietnamese dead and 50,000 Americans dead, but it was hugely destructive to the structure of America. And so going like we shouldn't necessarily jump in with both feet and think we know what we're doing. I think that's a great thing to be discussing. And that to me is the core of the prime directive. But they didn't really engage in that. And then they just had Kirk well, Kirk can just fix a planet, you know? And and so I think it was a brilliant, brilliant idea. And I think up to this day, they still have not really locked down how best to use the Prime Directive. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that what you said was right on point and very articulate. Certainly, that answer was thought through much, much more and much better than the concept of the prime directive itself when they they came up with it. Gene Kuhn came up with it back in uh, 66, 67. I think the prime directive was created with the very, very best of intentions. On paper, it is something that is absolutely essential to the Federation as they go out and explore strange new worlds without getting too tied up with them. So my question for you, Steve, is out of the second season episodes that we saw, which episode do you think is the best for lack of a better term for it the best prime directive episode oh that is an interesting question um i'm gonna give you a completely what i think will be a shocking answer in terms of really engaging in these ideas it's not one of my favorite episodes but is a private little war Okay. A Private Little War is the is the episode that most actually engages in the idea of what are the consequences with interfering with another planet and should mm -hmm. we do it or should we not? And and really presenting this is not an easy answer. You know, um, there are other episodes where I feel Kirk made the wrong choice, like the Apple. And there are other episodes where I feel he made the absolute right choice, like um, Return of the Archons. But but those don't engage as much in actually the issues of should we interfere and right. private little war does well how I, about well, you well, well my answer is different from yours i actually do agree with your choice of a private little war and i agree with why you chose it my favorite of the prime directive episodes is actually bread and circuses because of everything they did to not right. interfere and to not engage even to the point where Kirk tells Scotty condition green, which is his way of saying, hey, we're okay, we're in trouble, but it's not immediate, stay out of it, don't do anything to interfere. That's a great point, yeah. And I just think that watching watching Kirk in Bread and Circuses do everything in his power to stay out of it, to not interfere, to the point where by the end of the episode, in terms of the society of the planet, you know, Kirk and Spock and McCoy really didn't interfere at all. They didn't get anything done. They didn't change anything. They're still going to have the gladiatorial games on TV and so on. So I think that's that's a great example of the prime directive uh, in terms of enforcing it and right. really, really not interfering at all. And I just think overall that episode is great. <laughs> um, what do you think are the consequences of Gene Kuhn leaving? What was lost? Oh, Steve, that's a loaded question. 
That is a loaded question. I've been working on it. I, I just think that I just have so many times where I think to myself, what if Gene Kuhn stayed on as the showrunner for Star Trek? What would the rest of season two really have been like? Now, keep in mind that even after he left, most of the scripts that were put into production by his successor, John Lucas, were scripts that, that Kuhn did rewrites on, that he made changes on, suggested changes on, or in one case in particular, a piece of the action just wrote because he was allowed to do his comedy episode one final time with with the, the gangster episode. But if he had really stayed on as the showrunner for the rest of the season, not to take anything away from John Lucas because I thought he did a good job, but if he had stayed on as the showrunner, Steve, can you imagine what season three would have been like if Gene Kuhn was the showrunner producer of Star Trek? We would, we would probably have gotten a season four because NBC would not have had to deal with Roddenberry. They would have dealt with Kuhn. And NBC, the network, you know, they had problems with Roddenberry. And that was one of the reasons why they were intent on burying Star Trek. That is, it is such an interesting question. Like, what if Gene Kuhn had stayed? Man, uh, I mean, look, I'm glad that he was there for as long as he was, but damn. I had never even considered the political aspects of it, that the relationship with the network would have been different and therefore season three would have been different. I had never considered that. That is a really interesting one to think about. I think, A, I think we need to be careful not to, he's not, he's not perfect. He didn't do everything perfectly. And my guess is from what I've heard about his workload at the time, he might've just burnt out if he had stayed on that. That's one thing. But I think the big thing for me is the shows were tighter. They were just tighter. And it's, and a lot of that is those last rewrites is that even some of the shows that we know he touched the script, sometimes it's those rewrites on the day or week, you know, in the days right before. And it's the pressure to really, to, you know, one of the, the, there's there's two sort of tensions in creating things and one is at a certain point you have to let it go and that can be really really hard mm -hmm. and so you have to learn that lesson of like it's a job i do the best i can and then i let it go and then the, the other lesson is not good enough is there's a point where you can't let it go out until you feel that it is good enough to go out and i feel like particularly near the end of season two and obviously in season three there's a lot of like well we just got to get a show out you know uh, there was a lot of that, Steve. That's a great yeah. point. That is a really great point because when John Meredith Lucas took over after Gene Kuhn left, not only is he taken over, I mean, look, he had, he had been there a little because he wrote the Changeling, and you know, so right. he, he had a sort of uh, you know foot in the in the in the pool, you know. But when it came to being a showrunner, being a producer, not only did he have to take over from Kuhn, but but Lucas took over from Kuhn at a time when when it was like like after 16 episodes are we going to get renewed or we're going to pick up a, another few uh well what what, after, what about after that well let's pick up another couple more and and that meant always having to have scripts ready to go into production if they got the green light for the rest of the second season so what you're describing Steve is exactly what happened under Lucas's watch but if Kuhn had just been there and stayed on, yeah, I mean, he definitely, according to him and according to to other people who who were there, like Bob Justman and even David Gerald, Kuhn was definitely exhausted and burned out. 
but he was also butting heads with Roddenberry after Kuhn took the show in a more comedic direction, and Roddenberry didn't like that. They had a falling out. Kuhn left, and you could see, and we talked about this, Steve, that by the end of the second season, Roddenberry's name is in a lot more scripts and not often for the better because some of those scripts got very heavy-handed, but Roddenberry was intent on taking back the show that he lost a hold of when Gene Kuhn was producing it. You know what the interesting things that people don't really, some people who don't work in the creative world understand, we always have the image of like the great creator, the genius, you know, that's yeah, the person yeah. who made it. Mm -hmm. And frequently, frequently, you, that genius, not saying they're not a genius, needs other people to push back against them. You know, that that is George Lucas a genius? And is he responsible for creating Star Wars? Absolutely. Was the first edit a total mess? Were there lots of problems with the script that led people like Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford to improvise new dialogue in order to make that thing better? Yes. And most importantly, Marsha Lucas coming in and re-editing things and John Williams coming in and making things make sense with an amazing score. Yeah. That's how you get that movie. And so I actually think the tension between Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry probably is responsible for some of the best Star Trek. Is sure. that it's it's not Gene Roddenberry being ascended and it's not Gene Kuhn getting to do anything he wants to do. It's that they had to compromise because and I've had this experience, too, where I've written a thing or, or made a film and gone. This is the best thing ever. I've, it's perfect. And then I send it out and then people rip it to pieces and I'm angry and upset and go, they don't understand me. They don't get it. Like yeah. <laughs> terrible people. They're jerks. Then I can't sleep. I'm up all night. And the next day I get up and make the thing better. That's, right. And that happens all the time. But it's also interesting that with Gene Kuhn, two, two of the scripts that he wrote that his name was on, Solo, Devil in the Dark, and Metamorphosis, are, are I think they're the only two episodes of Star Trek where the credited writer was the only person mm, who, who developed, right, who touched it. I mean, like you had advice from. Bob Justman and Dorothy Fontana and certainly Stan Robertson over at NBC. But in terms of the name on the rewrites and the the new outlines and the revisions and the, the new drafts, Kuhn's name is the only one on those two scripts. And they went from outline to final draft teleplay in four or five weeks, very, very quickly. So, but no, I I I man, in a in a parallel universe, Steve, Gene Kuhn stayed on. Star Trek, and it ran for five years, the five-year yep. <laughs> And then there would have been no movie, no other <laughs> yeah. series, you know, because also I think it's like part of what makes Bruce Lee or James Dean legends is that they died. Yeah. Is that if they go on, then they aren't the same kind of legend. If Star Trek goes on and has a good five-year run, maybe we're not here. Maybe you and I are not sitting here today. That That's very possible. And listen, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the the story of its short run and the myth that it was a disaster in the ratings when it actually did pretty solid numbers. But the fact that it went away after 1969 and then it shows up in this thing called syndication and people like you and me, which I am proud that you and I and so many of our listeners on Enterprise Incidents are members of the syndication generation that discovered Star Trek five nights a week on UHF, made it very, very popular 
in order for Star Trek to lead to all the new shows and all the new movies that followed. But would that have happened if Gene Kuhn had stayed on? Who knows? (laughs) So I've got some questions for you. Let's hear which character of the main cast surprised you the most in season two who emerged in a way or showed you something you didn't expect. Wow. That is a great question, Steve. And the, the answer I have to that is an answer that, that came to me when we were early in our season two deep dive conversations of Star Trek on enterprise incidents. And that character, the one who surprised me the most is Scotty. Mm. Scotty is the man. He's the man. Not only did he save the day in like Friday's Child and Bread Circuses, but look at how he did it. Look at the way he ran that bridge in Friday's Child when he answered the the distress call, which wound up being fake. And he's like going back to the planet Capella and he gets another distress call. And he's like telling Uhura, ignore it. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And then in Bread and Circuses, when he's on the bridge and he says, Condition Green says, I can't interfere, but that doesn't mean I can't show this planet what the power of a starship really can do. And he's like, I, <laughs> and Jimmy Dillon is just so fantastic. He just crushed it. What is your answer to this question? Well, first of all, I love yours. And I think that the um, what's so interesting is, is that it seems to me such a case of the writer's realizing who this actor is and yeah. what he's capable of um, because he is just Scotty is so well-defined of the not big three. He's the one we have the clearest sense of really who this guy is. I think he's for great. sure mm-hmm. for, for me. It's just Chekhov stepping in and just instantly being part of the family. That that's, that's really impressive to me because there's no reason why he's not another crew guest star. Like we've had tons of them that shows up for one or two episodes and we never hear of them again. You know, like LaSalle or something, DeSalle, yeah. DeSalle you know, yeah. like, but, but he shows up and he's like, oh, he's one of the team right away. And that's, you know, that's a great point too, Steve, because Walter Koenig made such an impression with his performance as Chekhov in just two seasons of Star Trek. It feels like he was there for all three. I mean, you know, like when I think of the first season of Star Trek, I don't think of it as, oh, that's the one that Chekhov wasn't there for. Right. I just think of Chekhov as being a part of Star Trek, and and I don't divide it to, oh, well, it's just season two or three. You're absolutely right. Uh, which character would you think was most underutilized? Uh, I got to say Uhura. Uhura, I mean, she had she had some good moments. Uh, you know, she was part of the landing party in Games of the Triskelion. Uh, she really crushed it in Mirror Mirror. But I just wish that they had used her more. And I know we brought this up when we were talking to Ralph Sinetsky about uh, Return to Tomorrow. And, you know, having Dr. Ann Mulhall take the uh, life force of Thalesa, she was fantastic. But wouldn't it have been great to have Nichelle Nichols as Uhura play that role? That would have been fantastic. That that's And that's something that, that Dorothy Fontana really, really tried to to do when some of these scripts came in from other writers and they had some of these like these uh crew members who we never saw before she's like well why don't we just have sulu do this or why don't we have Chekhov do this or why don't we have mccoy do that and i just wish that someone had been vocal and and said we're, we're not using Michelle nichols enough she's fantastic how about you uh, 
I so I would not say in season one she's without question the most underutilized. In season two, she does as you as you said, she has a bunch of really good moments. I'm just now I'm thinking about Return to Tomorrow with with Uhura in the part, and it's like you think about controversy around the first interracial kiss for Plato's stepchildren. That's just one kiss where they're being forced to do it. This would be a relationship, yes. where it's true love. I don't know if it would have been that would have been amazing, but that I don't been awesome. But I don't think that you could get away with it. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think they would. I, I don't think the network would ever have let that happen. Um, but um, I think my most underutilized character is, and it isn't because he was off shooting a movie with John Wayne for eight episodes, but it's Sulu. Because if you look at the first seven or eight episodes of Star Trek in the first season, he's a really big character. He's a bigger character than Scotty is. And in the second season, with the exception of Mirror Mirror and a couple of other moments, he has almost nothing to do. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I think, well, listen, if he had not gone off and missed 10 episodes, and that's, yeah, I mean, 10 episodes out of the 26 that were shot for season two, yeah. he missed, I mean, that, that was supposed to be him on Triskelion with uh, Kirk and Uhura in Game of the Triskelion, but, you know, he wasn't back. Uh, that that shoot got delayed in Georgia because the weather was terrible. Um, and he missed a, a really good, that would have been a really great role. And yeah, you're right. In the first season, Sulu was an excellent, excellent character. And you're right. I mean, next to her, he is definitely the most underutilized. But Steve, who is your favorite guest starring performance on season two of Star Trek? So first of all, this is a really tough question because there are so many great ones. And I'm going to separate this answer into two because you asked who is my favorite performance. And I'm f and my favorite performance is William Wyndham in Doomsday Machine. I think his performance is the layers of it, the intensity of it, the strength of it, the sadness of it, the vulnerability mm -hmm. of it, the insanity of it. I think he... He totally makes that show. And it's a great show, top to bottom anyway. So he, his is my favorite performance. My favorite character that was introduced is Sarek. Okay, great. Mark Leonard. Mm -hmm. You know, also a great performance. But in terms of an addition to Star Trek and as a character I absolutely adore, despite the fact he's barely ever shows up, I think Sarek is a huge, huge addition. How about you? Uh, that's, uh, I think Sarek is fantastic. And I, and I, I'm, thrilled that we got to see Mark Leonard reprise that character in some of the original yeah, series movies. But, you know, okay, to answer your first answer, to follow up on that, William Wyndham, I mean, come on. He's the Citizen Kane of guest stars in season two of Star Trek. His performance is, as Decker, as Ahab, I mean, it's just so great. And the tension between Decker and Spock is fantastic. And the tension between Decker and Kirk, Kirk isn't even on, on the Enterprise. And you could just feel that tension between Decker and Kirk, just their budding heads through their communicators. It's really, really fantastic. Uh, I, I think the best character antagonist and the best performance next to William Wyndham is Michael Forrest as Apollo. Mm. Because it was during our conversation on Who Mourns for Adonais that I realized Apollo is not a bad guy. He is a sad god. He is a sad being. He is longing for acceptance. He is longing for 
purpose and he is longing for affection and he is longing for them so strongly that he's going to force Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise to give it to him. And that final scene when he says, uh, you know, take me and he disappears, uh, it is so heartbreaking. It is so heartbreaking. Uh, the other performance uh, I really, really like a lot, and I've always said this, one of the most under underrated guest stars in all of Star Trek is Eleanor Donahue from Metamorphosis. Right. Just because the, the range that the actress has to go to from the beginning as Hedford when she's very, very tough to when she completely breaks down, realizing she squandered her life to this elegant beauty, uh, this innocence uh, that she displays when she's uh, resurrected as the companion. This is all in just, you know, 50 minute episode. And she's, she's lovely. She's absolutely lovely. And one final honorable mention, William Marshall as Daystrom in the ultimate computer. Excellent performance. There really are a lot of great guest stars throughout season two. A lot yeah. of really good actors come in. Well, I, and maybe I already have your answer to this. Is Does that mean Apollo is your favorite antagonist in season two? One of them. One, one of, of them. Yes, yes. Apollo is definitely one of my favorite antagonists. The other antagonist that, that really just like like went way up there for me, Steve, and this is because of the revelation I had about this character from talking with you, on Enterprise Incidents, and also talking to director Ralph Sinensky is proconsul Claudius Marcus from Bread mm. and Circuses, right? Logan Ramsey was so good in that role. He was like a, like a mustache-twirling baddie who makes no apologies for who he is, is steadfast in his belief that he is doing what, his, what he has been uh, bred to by the society that he was raised in this true parallel world from, you know, Hodgkin's law of parallel worlds, whatever, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but Logan Ramsey, I thought was absolutely fantastic. And that was a big revelation for me from doing enterprise incidents with you. Um, what's interesting is with him, with Apollo, they really show one of the things that I love about Star Trek that I learned from Star Trek is these are not evil characters. They are not doing things because simply because they are bad guys. They are doing things out of motivations of what their character needs, what their value system is. So I, I that, that's one of the things I really like. Here are my two favorite antagonists. The first one, and it really was on our rewatch that I went, oh my God, this might be the most evil move of anybody in Star Trek, at least that we've seen so far. And that is to Pring. Man, what oh, she does, oh, her yeah. move to basically, you know, have her fiance either murder his best friend or be killed himself so she can get what she wants. That's pure. That's that's an evil move, <laughs> you know, in, in contrast to what I said, although she is doing it entirely out of self-interest. But that is not my favorite antagonist. My favorite antagonist is Mirror Spock. Ooh, oh, man, that is a great choice. Let's hear it. I mean. He is the most, he, it's awesome. I mean, it's so much fun to watch Nimoy play the part and he's genuinely scary. He's genuinely like, oh, I would not want to be up against this person. I th I put Mirror Spock up against Khan. I put Mirror Spock up against any bad guy in all of Star Trek. That is a dangerous dude who I, I still really like, you know? You, you really like him because like Kirk himself said, he is very much like our own Mr. Spock, isn't he? And- mm -hmm. 
and we, you know, we talked about this during our epic deep dive of Mirror Mirror about the brilliance of Leonard Nimoy's performance. About uh, you know, I think y- you really raised a really great question th- during during that conversation. Is uh, I uh, you know, did he get to be that way because? because of the society he was in. I mean, it was really, really an incredible conversation on that episode, Mirror, Mirror. Uh, and as for T'Pring, you're, uh, that is also an excellent choice. Uh, she was so calculating. She was evil. But as Spock himself said, she was flawlessly logical. Yep. Um, what episode surprised you the most? Steve, two episodes surprised me the most in terms of having a new appreciation for them. One of them is Bread and Circuses. Because mm-hmm. it is an episode that when it aired at the as the second to the last episode, it was dumped there because NBC didn't like that it was a spoof of of NBC right. or a satire of NBC, uh, and and it, and it has held up today where it gains new relevance because of reality television. But this episode has it all. It has drama, conflict, great guest star performances. Uh, a real edge of your seat moment at the very end when they beam out of the jail cell at the last moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, and it, and having Ralph Sinetsky on to talk about it, talking about those scenes and the scene in the cell with with Kurt, with the Spock and McCoy. I mean, there is so much packed into this fifty minute episode. It's really really staggering. But the other episode that really I've always liked, but really went way up in turn in a, in a surprising way to answer your question was the Deadly Years. Mm-hmm. Because when we were talking about that with our with our guest uh, Jim Brooks that day, and you know, here we are, we're middle age, and this is an episode that I certainly liked it when I was a little kid, into my teens and in my college years, and so on and beyond that. But as a middle aged man in my fifties now, it has resonated in completely different ways because we care about these characters, we care about Kirk and Spock and McCoy and Scotty so very much. It hurts to see people we care about, i.e. family members that that have gone through this to suffer. And that is what makes the episode so powerful. It is a it's a really personal episode. Uh, and and watching Kirk deal with the, his failing memory and it, it it's it's and just lose their physical bearings as well. It it hit me in a in a much more powerful emotional way than it ever had. What is your uh, the episode that have really surprised you? So, Deadly Years is a great answer. That that's probably my second. It really because I didn't expect to be moved, right. and that's really what was surprising to me. For me, the most surprising episode episode I always liked, always thought it was a great episode of Star Trek. But through studying, and I went, man. This the direction in this episode is next level, and there's so much more here in terms of relationships than I really had seen until I studied it closely. And that's Journey to Babel. Is Journey to Babel? It's beautifully shot. There's the camera is put in places in different ways from anything else in Star Trek. The production value because there's so many extras, there's so much going on in it. And then, man, the more I think about Sarek and Spock and Amanda the more those characters get deep and complicated and conflicted and hypocritical and prideful. I mean, there, you know, it is that episode proves more than anything else. The, that the idea that Vulcans don't have emotions is BS 
is that that episode is so filled with emotions. It's just, it's all being held down. That's what really surprised me the most. Was there an episode that after our deep dive that you had a further thought on either because you watched the episode again after the conversation or because of something that you read online, you know, on Facebook or Twitter or, or on our Apple, uh, Apple podcast page with the reviews that made you go, oh, I wish, I wish we had talked about that or that, uh, that thing that you read actually made you feel differently about the scope of the conversation. Um, Oh, that's a good question. I think I, you know, in general, I don't read very much because I want it to be just what you and I think. Mm -hmm. But the one that I did read about, because I'm, I will always be trying to get to the bottom of this, is Private Little War. Is does Kirk send down the flintlocks or <laughs> does he not? You know, like what is the final decision? Because and and I know you believe that he does. And certainly there's evidence for that, but there's also evidence that he's saying no, and there's evidence that it's just left ambiguous. And so that's the one where, I, and it's so funny because I don't love the episode, you know, for all the reasons we talked about, yeah. but I can't stop thinking about like, well, what was this about? What does mm. it say? What does it all mean? It's, it's, you know what it is? It's the most seventies film of this sixties TV show. Because it's filled with so much ambiguity and the characters are so conflicted and Kirk, our hero, is so his motivations are so hard to figure out, you know, that it's like leaves you in this like, well, well how am I supposed to feel about this? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, you know, what's funny, Steve, is that all these years of watching A Private Little War, it never occurred to me that he didn't right. arm the, the Hill people with flintlocks. And he, I just thought, oh, he's, he's, you know, using the word serpents instead of the actual word flintlocks because of the flintlocks represents, represent the serpents. Absolutely. Out sure. of the garden. So I just, it just never occurred to me that he didn't, but you know what? You make a great argument and other people have made a great argument. Maybe he did not send the flintlocks down and that we will never know. And if we're, if we're talking about it and going back and forth, either way, I think that's actually really, really cool. Well, here, I'll give you here. I have I, for this whole time I've been trying to figure out since we did the thing, I've been trying to figure out a good metaphor. Let's say that we were talking about whether or not to send tequila shots to the kindergarten class. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I said, all right, Scott, you know, I guess and for all these reasons we have to do. And I say, okay, Scott, I want you to send down 50 tequila shots to the kindergarten class. And you say, I'm sorry, what did you say? What did you say you want me to do? And then I realized that that's a bad idea. And I go, uh, 50 doses of poison. Uh, uh, look, you, like, I get it. I, I hear you. you. know, I understand. I understand completely why that moment is, is more ambiguous than, than I've certainly given it credit for, for all these decades. But there were two, mo two episodes in particular for me mm. where there was something that I read because I do read all the comments on Facebook and, and, and Apple podcasts. And one of them was regarding the Omega Glory. Now, we, we talked about Omega Glory. There are great moments in that episode, but the, the whole is less than some of the parts. The last act does jump the shark when they bring in the American flag and so on. But there was one thing about, one comment that I read about the Omega Glory that made me see it in a way that it made me appreciate it a little more. And that is that the Omega Glory is the heart of darkness of Star Trek. Mm. Because... Captain Ron Tracy is Kurtz. He's Kurtz, you know. He 
he he kurtzed, you know, he, and, yeah. and certainly he's Colonel Kurtz in some ways from Apocalypse Now. Um, yeah. So so that was one thing that made me go, oh, yeah, kind of is Heart of Darkness. I mean, do, do you do you see that or am I off my rocker? No. And, and I saw the comment and I do. I think that's part of what it is. I but and, and this is all I think the Omega Glory is just all these missed opportunities, because if they had just done that and said, this is a guy who gets left on this planet, who's a hero in all these ways. And then we, you know, we find him and he has gone mad and, you know, like, okay, I'm, I think that's a really interesting episode. It doesn't quite explore it, but I like that idea a lot. I think it's a good explanation. It's, it's a great idea. The other thing, the other episode, Steve, now this doesn't make me like patterns of force any more than I sort of did when we talked about it but that was an episode that i i certainly felt was problematic i know you did too uh, an episode that's very you know heavy-handed beats you over the head in some ways but but it because because of something i read it made me see that here's an episode of star trek that was filmed in 1967 that's not dealing with world war ii like let's say hogan's heroes uh, mm-hmm. Or, or even a film like *The Great Escape*. It's, it's a, a, a show, an episode that's dealing with the Holocaust, and it may not have been a fully realized vision of of the Holocaust, and it may have been very, very simplistic to fit into a fifty minute episode. Mm-hmm. But from something I read, it made me realize: wait a minute. For a show like Star Trek, 22 years after the Holocaust, to address the Holocaust was a pretty bold and daring thing. They didn't just do it about about a Hitler figure or about conflict and war. Like They took on genocide and the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And at a time today, Steve, when we we are seeing more and more Holocaust survivors disappear Mm -hmm. over time, at a time when we are seeing more, more Holocaust deniers, uh, at a time when we are seeing more people not even know what the Holocaust was or that it even existed. But here you have a show like Star Trek, which is watched over and over and over again over the decades. And if there is an episode that will remind people of what the Holocaust was and what happened, then I'm all for it. Flaws aside, for the episode itself. I think that having an episode like Patterns of Force that is going to get watched again over the years by fans who were discovering Star Trek for the first time, and maybe they'll it'll put something in their head about the Holocaust. And I think that's a good thing. I, that's a great point. And I really love the way you said that. I still wish they had done it better. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah sure. <laughs> but 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 I think that's a really good point that that's something that other TV really wasn't dealing with at all. So that that's pretty cool. From from that heavy question, I now <laughs> yes. propose a very light one, which is there's a lot of romance in season two of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Met a lot of couples, people like the Companion and Cochrane. We saw Apollo and Lieutenant Palamas. We saw Chekhov have a very romantic relationship with I think it's Lieutenant Landon on the planet of the Apple. So my question for you, Scott. Who is going to win the cutest couple award from Star Trek season two? 
Well, Steve, that is a great question. And I'm glad that you came up with it because I would not have done that. <laughs> but it is a great question because I have a, a couple of a couple of different answers to the cutest couple. And now in terms of cutest couple, you know, I think of like something a little more playful. But I think one of the most romantic couples is indeed Zephram Cochran and the companion towards the end of Metamorphosis. You know, that moment when she holds up the scarf and she says, I can't go with you. And he says, I'm going to stay. And they go back to Kirk, Spock and McCoy. And, and he says, you know, now that we have all these years together, they're going to be happy ones. It's a really beautiful moment. The way that the companion Hedford is looking at Cochrane, like she really loves him. And he finally realizes that he loves her. But in terms of like, you know, cutest couple, I'm going to go. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we don't see a lot of them. But there's one scene that makes me go, they're a cute couple. I'm going to go with Chekhov and Tamun from the Gangsters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, that one scene in the cell when she's like, you know, sizing him up and she's like, that's a very nice name, Chikov. And he's like, <laughs> Chekhov. Uh, it's, it's cute. I mean, it's brief, but, you know, they really are cute together. I don't what know. He you? seems a little. He seems a little just uncomfortable with the whole thing. I'm not sure <laughs> that he's a willing participant. But it is a cute scene. Uh, for me, for I first of all, of course, you're right. Cochrane and the companion. That is the most romantic story. That is, the, it's the most fully realized love story. Yep. May, it might be the most fully realized complete love story, other than maybe City on the Edge of Forever in all of Star Trek, the original series. I haven't thought about that a lot, but I mean, it certainly has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Absolutely. Um, for me, the cutest couple without question is Gary Seven and Roberta. Oh, I, absolutely. Yeah. I not I really like them. And and because I think about what that show would be, I can see going forward in the Assignment Earth show how she's going to kind of mellow him out a little bit and he's going to give her some direction. And of course, it's going to be a will they, won't they multiple seasons before they finally have a first kiss and become romantic kind of a show. And I could totally see it and I would really enjoy it. So they win cutest couple for me. Uh, honorable mention for cutest couple goes to two really quick. I'm just going to say Kirk and Kalinda in by any mm. other name. Like mm-hmm. when she goes back, I was yeah. wondering, can, can you, can you, can you uh, apologize to me again? And, you know, Kirk just has that like devilish smile on his face. Um, but the other cute couple, and I, and I say this in a way where I don't mean romantic couple, but just in the way that these two are acting together is really cute is Kirk and Spock in a piece of the action after they put on mm-hmm. the gangster suits and when they get in the fliver and he starts driving and he Spock makes the comment, he goes, you're an excellent starship captain, but as a taxi driver, you leave much to be desired. Kirk goes, it was that bad. I <laughs> think, you know, that, that's just great chemistry between Shatner and Nimoy. They're fantastic. I, I'm going to put in one more, which is the least healthy, most codependent, terrible couple <laughs> is Dr. Richard Daystrom in the M5. That is not a, <laughs> not a good couple. No way. <laughs> so in all of season two, you know, we have we have episodes that we love. But what, what about the great moments? Is there like a particular moment with our main characters that really, really stands out with you? And, and I'm going to start with with, with Uhura. Uh, with Uhura, Uhura, there's no question. And it's going to be my answer for another character, too. It's Uhura. It's Mirror Mirror. It's Mirror Mirror on the bridge with Sulu. 
Yes, she's in that unbelievable outfit. And she is so strong and so tough. And you could see Nichelle Nichols be afraid and have to overcome her fear and put on the show and how dangerous it is. That is hands down my favorite Uhura moment. Uh, I agree. And as by hands down my favorite Uhura episode, because she has so much to do in that episode. And you, you talked about Sulu. Is it also that moment where, yes. where he's with her? Yeah. yeah. Uh, for, for Sulu, I think that moment is great. But I, I think the moment in uh, Sick Bay when he shows up and he says, Mr. Spock has orders to kill you. And he Oh, that's good too. You know, it's such a great, like, like George Decay, like you said, he, he was underutilized in season two. It didn't help that he missed almost half the season. But that is his, his shining moment is in Mirror Mirror in these scenes. What about Chekhov? Give some more blood, Chekhov. Have some more, take this other test, Chekhov. It's in Deadly Years. It's when he has that great, great monologue. Excellent. You know, with, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, they, and then he says to Sulu, uh, if I live long enough, I'll run out of samples. <laughs> great moment. What about, and this is going to get a little tougher. What is your favorite Scotty moment? Definitely tougher because he does so much in the second season. And I'm going to totally cheat. And I'm going to give you three. Okay. Because I couldn't fine. pick. For me, as Scotty the Miracle Worker, which really gets established in season two, it's a doomsday machine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that him being the person that's going to solve all the problems that's there. For a personal moment, it's one of the few kind of heartfelt, other than Wolf in the Fold, is the moment in Mirror Mirror when he tells Kirk he's going to stay behind and he says, Jim. That's only time moment. he ever calls him Jim and it's very small, but it's really great, but I can't escape the fan favorite. I can't get away from <laughs> it's green. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's the best. Uh, first of all, you're that, that's a great point about doomsday machine. I mean, you know, take your, take your pick the moments from doomsday machine, uh, uh, you know, but when he's in the Jeffrey's tube and he's trying to fix the transporter, I mean, yep. uh, moment after moment for Scotty in the doomsday machine is great. But in terms of like, Another great moment. I'm going to say again in Bread and Circuses when he's yeah. on the bridge and and he's gotten the order from Kirk about condition green. And he says, uh, uh, tells Chekhov to start looking for the power sources on the planet. And he says, uh, uh, it'll show them what a starship really can do. And he goes, I, it's just a great, like the confidence of that moment is so, so awesome. Uh, what about uh, we've reached Dr. McCoy? What about Dr. McCoy? Dr. McCoy, I think if there's one standout moment, it's that's really tough. That really is tough. I mean, the moment in a mock time when he gives Kirk the uh, neural paralyzer, I mean, that yeah. was a stroke of genius for him to fake the death. But when he's suffering from the effects of the of the rapid aging, in mm. the deadly years and it hits him adrenaline the adrenaline like mccoy yeah. was a like he saved the day in the deadly years and it's not the mccoy that we're used to seeing in fact it was hard seeing him uh age so rapidly like that but even with the effects of the aging process he's still a medical genius for me it's the scene in the cell with Spock in Bread and Circuses. Sure. That's the that's just it's it's the top of their personal relationship. It's when each one both understands something about the other and misunderstands something about the other. And it's so intense and beautifully acted. I so that that's my favorite McCoy moment for me. Uh, another sort of honorable mention McCoy moment for me is after after Kirk and Spock have tried to 
short circuit the companion in mm. metamorphosis and uh, Cochrane gets the companion off of them and Kirk recovers and he says, how do you fight a thing like that? And McCoy says to Kirk, you're a soldier so often that you forget that you're also a diplomat. Why don't you try waving a carrot in front of a stick instead of a stick? And that's another great one. That's a great moment. And one final great moment is just, just in terms of the acting of the Forrest Kelly and William Shatner is the scene in the cave in a private little war when McCoy is calling out Kirk for supplying the the pill people with flintlocks and they're going on and on. He says, you know, you're, you're condemning and condemning them that will go to a war that will go on bloody year after bloody year, massacre after massacre. And Kirk just slams his fist down and says, all right, doctor. It's a great moment for the two yeah. of them. But now we get to Spock. What are your Spock moments? It's so it's so tough. So what, I'll tell you what I wrote down and I will be I promise to be more specific because I wrote down all of a mock time, all of mirror mirror. Yeah, yeah. But to be more specific, from the moment after he believes he killed Kirk, with the whole scene with Tapring, the talking to to Powell and saying I've killed my captain and my friend, like it's so heartfelt and so sad. And then when he sees Kirk alive and that smile on his face, oh yeah, that is so good. To contrast that with the scene in Mirror and Mirror when it's basically him and Kirk posturing with each other. And Kirk says, you'd find me a, you know, a dangerous opponent. And when Spock says, I hope that you realize the reverse, or I hope oh, that you're great. aware of the reverse. That is a fantastic moment. And my last one, again, it could be any moment at, in the, in the last active piece of the action, but man, when he puts his feet up on the desk, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just love it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, first of all, you're right. Uh, take your pick from a mock time. But that moment when Kirk walks through, he says, you know, I'll send, I'll, uh, you know, instruct Scotty to take command of the Enterprise. And Kirk says, don't you think you better check with me, me first? And he goes, Captain. And he swings Kirk around. He goes, Jim, it's such a great moment. Yeah. It's such an iconic moment. And it, it it was shocking to me when we were doing our deep dive of a mock time that Leonard Nimoy actually had reservations about filming that scene. Like he thought that Spock should have smiled in private, not in front of Kirk. Um, but the other uh, overall, I have to say, is Spock in command of the Enterprise in Who Mourns for Adonais. The reason mm. is, look at Spock's first command in the Galileo 7, how he was out of his element. He had no idea what he was doing. And he just made a lot of wrong decisions. The growth of Spock from the Galileo 7 to who mourns for Adonais when he's on the bridge and he's saying, I want to know what's going on down there. And Uhura is trying to fix the communication circuits and he is giving her positive reinforcement, telling her, I can mm. think of nobody better equipped than you, Miss Uhura. Please proceed. Like this is this is a character who grew, who evolved, and he makes such a great commander in who mourns for Adonais. Absolutely. Great, great point. All right. We've reached the big guy. Let's hear it. Captain you Kirk. Go first. Yes. Okay. I'll go first. Okay. <laughs> uh, first of all, again, I love Shatner in a piece of the action. So in terms of comedy, in terms of seeing him, William Shatner have fun, the whole speech of the Federation's moving in, we're taking over. 
you know, that whole thing as he's just yeah. strutting his gangster stuff, I think is hilarious and awesome and it's a joy to me to watch. Um, but I'm going to go with, uh, I just got to go with the two speeches. So I got to go with the end of Mirror Mirror and I'm convincing Mirror Spock to take over the Enterprise and Risk is Our Business. Can't beat risk is our business. Those are my those are my moments. Those are my first true moments as well. I have speech to Spock and mirror mirror, and then quote unquote risk is our business. Those are my top two Kirk moments. Uh, I'm going to add to that the Fizbin scene. Fizbin's great. Fizbin yeah. is great, and that is just Shatner uh, really really leaning into a comedic strength that he did not get credit for at that time. Uh, I love my favorite Kirk Kirk moment. Uh, I, I love the scenes in a metamorphosis when Kirk is trying to reason with the companion, but I, th I think I love it more because of just Shatner's performance. He was just so, so great in that episode and that scene in particular, but Steve, the moment when the Romulans are attacking the enterprise, which has ventured into the neutral zone and Commodore Stalker is out of his element, and Chekhov oh, sure. and Uhura and Sulu are turning to him, looking for orders. What do we do? And in walks a young and back to his prime Captain Kirk on the bridge, and he's given orders left and right. He is cool as a cucumber. He is strutting his stuff. He is totally confident, and you see Chekhov and Sulu and Uhura just looking at him with smiles of relief. You go, that's our guy. That's my captain. That's the moment for me. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. It's a triumphant moment. Scott, for you, what was the most thrilling moment in season two of Star Trek? Wow. Well, you know, because season two really just to me is the peak Star Trek. There are so many great moments that I got to say, after all these years, all these decades, I still watch them and they still keep me on the edge of my seat. And Number one, because I got a couple, number one on that list is the scene where Kirk is on the Constellation at the end of the Doomsday Machine, and the transporter keeps shorting out, and Kirk is like, gentlemen, I suggest you beam me aboard, and Sulu was counting down the seconds, and the, the planet killer is getting closer, and... You know, you, you, you see the, the constellation enter the mouth of the planet killer and try it now, Mr. Kyle. They beam him aboard and he's he's healthy and he runs to the bridge. It's so great because it's it's edge of your seat stuff. But then when he when he when he beats back aboard the Enterprise, he is it's a rousing moment. It's such an uplifting moment. It's so great. That's number one for me. What's number that's, one? For that's you? mine, hands down. Same thing. I think it is the tightest, most well put together build to a climax in all of the original series i think it is so well done that is hands down most thrilling moment of season two uh, absolutely i think i think that the whole episode is cinematic like you could show the doomsday machine in a movie theater and i pay i would pay to see it uh, uh the other moment for me that i feel like is really thrilling is towards the end of bread and circuses when kirk spock and mccoy are fighting the roman guards with their swords and merrick flips open the communicator, you know, uh, enterprise mm -hmm. uh, emergency beam up and the pro console just like stabs him. And then like, you see him like yank his knife out with the blood on his knife. And the way he, he throws the communicator into the cell, it's like this half smile. He's doing everything he can to show some kind of a smile of redemption for himself. 
and you just see the transporter beam Kirk, Spock, and McCoy up, and they're firing their machine guns. And it's just like, talk about a nick of time moment. One final third honorable mention in terms of thrilling moments is in the middle of By Any Other Name when the Enterprise is approaching the barrier mm. at the edge of the galaxy. That's a good and one too. Kirk and Spock and Scotty. Scotty's got his finger on the button to open up the uh, uh, and flood the uh, the engines with antimatter. And Kirk is just sitting in his chair like, holy cow, what do I do? Um, and it's just so funny how the episode turns into something completely different like within moments after that scene. What moment in season two moved you the most? That is an easy one. It is going to come as no surprise to everyone listening to our season two wrap that my favorite episode of season two, if not Star Trek itself, is Metamorphosis. And the scene in Metamorphosis, when the when Nancy Hedford, who's now been resurrected by the companion, holds up her scarf and she sees Cochrane through the scarf. Uh, it is such a beautiful moment. She says, I can't go with you. And and this, the score, the music that plays under that scene, uh, the music is composed by George Dunning. It is so, so deeply beautiful that that it always gets me emotional to the brink of tears, no matter how many times I watch it. I posted that scene on our Facebook page, Steve, uh, Enterprise Incidents Facebook page. And I got a lot of similar reactions from people who really are like, what a beautiful moment. What's your most moving moment? There's no question. Nothing hit me harder. And partially it's because I'm, you know, in my fifties now and have had family who have grown older and I've watched people decline. Kirk on trial in the deadly years is so painful and played so well. And you watching him try to put up the front and hold down his insecurity and want, watching him try to convince people that he's capable when he's not. And to have that scene and then following up on it when he rejects Spock, you know, and oh, Spock, yeah, it's just so brutal. These people, this is the you know most important relationships they have. And at this moment, they're falling apart. It just it, it that really is really wrecked me. Oh, that's that's a great moment. Oh, yeah. That the, the pain look on Spock's face when Kirk is like, get out of here. You stab me in the back. Oh, you're right. You're right. That is a really moving scene. And. Oh, and speaking of metamorphosis, I got to say, when we were doing our deep dive with Ralph Sinensky, and he read back a quote from something I said about that episode, like, I don't know, five or six years ago. Pretty great. Like, that just meant the world to me that the director of my favorite episode remembered and thought enough to read back my own quote about it. But speaking of an episode he did direct, Return to Tomorrow, you know, at the end of that episode, when when Sargon and Thalesa have one final moment before they are cast to oblivion, that, that's a it's a very moving moment. And and again, yeah. the score by George Dunning is also very effective in that episode as well. Uh, that's a great one. Where do you feel? We've talked about all the things we love about season two. We talked about these great themes, wonderful moments, great character moments thrilling episodes, moving episodes. Where did season two miss it? Where did season two go wrong for you? Okay, well, behind the scenes, where season two went wrong was Gene Roddenberry letting go of Gene Kuhn. Yeah. That was a big mistake. Uh, that was where season two went wrong. But but I just think that in the in the second half of the season, after uh, the filming of Bread and Circuses, you started getting 
you know, Omega Gory and Piece of the Action and Patterns of Force, the parallel Earth trope just got to be too much. And, you know, as much as I give Star Trek a free pass on things that I don't like because I just love the show so much and I love the characters so much, it, it did get to be a bit much. I think that's really the only downfall of, of season two is the reliance on the parallel Earth trope. So that's the big one for me. I'll give you a couple of small ones because I want to talk about the parallel Earth one. But but a couple of small ones is things like talking compute to computers and getting them to self-destruct. It's like <laughs> these things that got used over and over again. There's so many, particularly in the second half of season two of we're captured, we escape, we're captured, we escape and not necessarily having the most creative ways for us to escape. Like there's just a lot where you could see that they were running out of ideas, you know? And so, and so that one bothered the parallel earth one. That's a hundred percent the worst thing about season two. And what bums me out about it is I just think they got it wrong because then what happens is we, in later Star Trek is like, well, we can't do a parallel earth because that got really stupid in the old Star Trek is what they did was they said, it's exactly the same. Not only is it like Rome, but it's, they have the same God names, the same history that, you know, like all of it is the same. It's not just that they're kind of like Nazis. It's that they are Nazis. It's not just that they're kind of like America, but they have the same flag. They have the same constitution. They have, and so what, what happens is, is that becomes what the episode's about. Oh my God, what a crazy coincidence that halfway across the galaxy, we found a planet exactly like us. Instead of exploring it thematically, now, it's not one of my favorite episodes, but Miri is a, is an episode where we go to a planet that's similar to Earth that dealt with a thing that we could deal with but haven't. That's where the parallel Earth thing could be really good is because it allows you to explore an idea of what happens if we have nuclear war. How do we deal with, you know, all of the issues that we face, race and gender and, you know, all these things and explore it from a different angle. It's not doing it exactly the same. It's doing it that it's similar, that they face similar struggles. That would have been really good. But having that American flag come out, it's just like, well, this is just stupid. Yeah, you know, and it'll point. happen really, really fast, like one after the other. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I completely agree. But overall, let's face it, season two of Star Trek was absolutely brilliant. And the conversations that we had on season two on Enterprise Incidents are just... You know, just like Star Trek was hitting its stride season two, I feel like Enterprise Incidents hit its <laughs> stride in season two. So, so you know, we have been very lucky in the sense that we've had listeners find us over the course of that while we've been recording Enterprise Incidents. But where where can people go to really support us? Because as much as we love doing all this work, it is work. So where, how can people, how can enterprisers support enterprise incidents? Ooh, enterprisers. Is that their, is that their name now? Is that the official designation? That is oh, the hashtag. Like yes. Enterprisers. <laughs> all right. Well, you enterprisers out there, all you have to do is look at the show notes and every single podcast app where you listen this through, you can see the notes with the description of the show. And the first thing listed under the description is a link where you can click on it. It'll take you to anchor our host's website. And there you can subscribe to enterprise incidents for as little as 99 cents a month. It is a huge, huge help to us. We like to think of it as a tip jar. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to it. It really helps us out. And make sure you head to our Facebook page 
and like and follow us on Facebook because we have a lot of fun with our Facebook page. We really engage with our listeners. We ask really good questions. You'll be the first to hear about breaking news about our next episode and special guests for our next episode. Uh, we've had really engaging conversations and questions that we brought up that a lot of the fans re- really seem to enjoy engaging on. So head to our Facebook page, which is Enterprise Incidents. You can follow us on Twitter at Enter Incidents, and you can follow us on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. And Steve, where can people follow you on social media? SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And since we've just done kind of a recap of the season, well, on my other podcast, The Cinephiles, which is C-I-N-E dash F-I-L-E-S, <laughs> we do deep dives like we do on Enterprise Incidents, but every month we do a live show and our live shows are sometimes more casual conversations about broader events, one of which was our recap of the year in film of 2021, where my good friend Scott Mance appeared. And then this la- just a week ago, we revisited all of the forgotten comedies of the 80s. So if you care about 80s comedies, there is a live cinephile show for you to check out. Did you talk about the king of comedy? We did talk about the king of comedy. Okay. The most Excellent. disturbing, <laughs> difficult comedy. You know, it's co- it's co- to me, that one is comedy adjacent. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, comedy. It <laughs> it's funny, but it's rough. Uh, we talked about everything from back to school to Dragnet to Doctor Detroit to Better Off Dead. Say anything. We talked. We talked about. Must have talked about eighty different comedies. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, that's so great. As long as you really talked fun. about the King of Comedy, it's one of my favorite comedies ever. But you're right; it is comedy adjacent. And make sure you follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. So this this conversation, Steve, our season two wrap up really does wrap up our entire conversation about season two of Enterprise Incidents. So, you know, if you were not a fan, if you didn't know a lot about the history of Star Trek, you'd be like, wow, from season one to season two, wow, Star Trek got really, really great. It's got to keep getting better, right? Well, not exactly. And even though, Steve, I'm going to miss miss deep dive conversations on all time iconic classics like a mock time and mirror mirror and the doomsday machine and journey to Babel. I actually think when we get into our deep dives of the third season, particularly episodes like, and the children shall lead and Spock's brain and the way to Eden. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think our most interesting conversations have been on the episodes that were not that great. And I'm looking at you, Alternative Factor. (laughs) But before we dive into Season 3, we're going to prep and gear up for Season 3. So that is the focus of our next episode, our Season 3 preview. Season 3 begins with our preview of Season 3 on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. So join us, and until then, keep going boldly. (laughs) 